Hello and welcome to the August 28th edition of Ukraine and Belarus Without Hype, where we take a look at the biggest stories of the week from Ukraine, Belarus, and the region. I'm Romeo Kokratsky, and beside me is my colleague Maria Romanenko. Hello. The biggest story of the week is, of course, the continuing protests in Belarus, where the 26-year regime of Alexander Lukashenko seems to be holding on despite the daily protests against him. And the protests have so far shown no sign of stopping. In fact, on Monday, protesters made it nearly all the way to the presidential residence, prompting Lukashenko himself to make a quick return where he was photographed walking around his own residence dressed in military wear and carrying an automatic rifle, though it hadn't been loaded. Still, that's not a great sign, especially as internet access has become sporadic again, typically at the squares in central Minsk where the protests seem to be centered. And more protesters and oppositionists have been found dead, with the latest victim being a 28-year-old protester whose body was found in the woods. And Ukraine's presidential administration continues to find its voice on Belarus, with Zelensky saying in a recent interview that, if he were in Lukashenko's shoes, he would hold new elections to avoid, quote, bloodshed. He would also invite international observers to oversee the election. The Ukrainian president added that there wouldn't be any question of who was legitimate in Belarus afterwards. If Lukashenko truly did win in the first election, then he would win the second. Of course, the Lukashenko regime did not take Zelensky's words lying down with the Belarusian foreign ministry responding by claiming that while Ukraine and Ukrainians are a brother nation and brother people, they would prefer to hear less advice and more support. This has led to a split between the two countries, with Ukraine's foreign minister admitting in a recent interview that all of Ukraine's diplomatic procedures with Belarus are on pause. The regime has also moved ahead with its threats to criminally pursue Belarusians who joined likely presidential-elect Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya's National Coordination Council, intended to oversee a peaceful transfer of power from Lukashenko to the probable electoral victor. Two members of the council have been arrested, a representative for Tsikhanovskaya and a representative of the country's National Strike Committee. They've been charged with illegally taking part in unsanctioned mass events, and the Belarusian regime recently interrogated a Belarusian Nobel laureate about her own membership in the council. Meanwhile, Belarusian acting president Lukashenko and Russian president Vladimir Putin have come to an agreement on military aid, which led to an announcement by Putin about the creation of a reserve force of Russian security officers to be used in Belarus. According to Putin, this force was created at the request of Lukashenko and would be used only in, quote, extreme circumstances, citing burning cars, houses, banks, and seizure of government buildings as examples. Ukraine has actually taken another step in managing the situation in Belarus, as Ukraine has banned foreigners from entering its soil up until, from today until September 28th, but that excludes Belarusians because they can apply for asylum in Ukraine or they can provide reasons to the Ukrainian government saying that they need to enter Ukraine as uh, political asylum seekers because it's not safe for them being in Belarus. Uh, so the government explains this measure as a, as a measure against the spread of the coronavirus pandemic of which we have uh, seen, you know, we have seen cases increasing again. We had almost uh, 2,500 cases today, but more on that later. However, like permanent residents of Ukraine um, are allowed in and also diplomatic or humanitarian mission staff or those invited by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or the Ministry of Defense, they all will be excluded uh, from the ban. In addition, students and those transitioning through Ukraine for a period of no more than two days, asylum seekers, uh, they will all be allowed entrance. Also, people seeking to get health treatment in Ukraine. I mean, there is like a long, quite a long list of people who would be exempt from this ban as well as members of sports team playing in Ukraine. Um, so who does the ban actually apply to? 
Well, basically, um, foreigners, you know, non-Ukrainians who don't have any residence permits or any, like, they don't have a spouse in the country, anybody who doesn't have the right to live in Ukraine or to be in Ukraine. So anybody who's traveling here for touristic purposes um, and all hmm, of those. This all. wouldn't have anything to do with Rosh Hashanah, where thousands upon thousands of Hasidic Jews make pilgrimage to Uman every year, and this year in mid-September, would it? It may, it may not. The official governance position is that it doesn't have anything to do with that. Uh, but it strangely coincides with Rosh Hashanah, which is this year is uh, September 18th, September 20th. Uh, so there has been quite a lot of, um, you know, like happenings just before this decision was taking place because I think somebody from uh, an, an Uman official and Uman is this town where uh, Hasidic Jews uh, come every year uh, to celebrate the, the holiday um, he said that you know he basically advised the president to uh, stop the influx of uh, Jewish people into Ukraine f during this period because it can carry uh, a risk of uh, a new outbreak in the country or specifically in that region. And actually he's not the only one. Actually, uh, Israel's top coronavirus chief himself appealed to the Ukrainian government to uh, ban Jews from coming to England this year. Yeah, it's like a crazy story. So, you know, they were like, basically the Ukrainian officials, I think they were the first ones to sort of try and stop this. And then Zelensky wasn't really doing anything at that point. And then Israel has come up with a, you know, with a statement saying that please don't travel to Ukraine for this. And there have been like, you know, meetings and all of that. It was a bit unclear what exactly would happen. And then suddenly, actually the, the day before this was announced, uh, this ban, uh, there were rumors that be, there would be like a ban like this uh, announced, but it would only apply to red, the red zone, you know, the coronavirus red zone, which is a number of countries that have like specific amount of cases, basically the one that have a uh, bigger outbreaks. Uh, but then suddenly, you know, this decision is announced and it has drawn a lot of criticism. Uh, there, there are obviously speculations, as you rightly asked me just now, that, you know, this is to do with the Rosh Hashanah celebrations. Um, we can't confirm that, but, uh, it looks, cause, um, I watched yesterday's, um, I think it was, I think it was either today or yesterday, there was a press briefing, um, where they said, where they made it very clear that this ban is just for a month. And by introducing something like this just for a month, obviously the situation, the coronavirus is unlikely to get better in a month, I think. So by saying that this is specifically for a month only, it kind of draws those speculations. Speculation, yeah. yeah, that this is just specifically for, for you know, with the intention to stop uh, these celebrations from going on. And uh, also, you know, the the criticism that has this has drawn has also come from Ukrainian um, human rights organizations because they are worried that this would impact Belarusians still who are trying to come to Ukraine. Even though there is, you know, there seems to be all this um, mitigation, you know, circumstances that even Belarusians can come here. But it seems like, you know, they wouldn't just travel. They wouldn't be able to just come here, or at least it would be a difficult process. Like they wouldn't be able to just come and let in freely. They would either have to contact the government beforehand 
and say, I want to come and seek political asylum, or they have to prove it on the border. Like, it still seems like a difficult process for them. So that was, that was one of the criticisms, because it puts the Belarusians who are under political pressure for being active citizens during the protests that are taking place in Belarus. So it puts them in an awkward position where, you know, it makes it harder for them to flee Belarus. And also, I mean, just if you look online at all the news, you know, articles that are being shared about this, lots of people are just devastated by this because like so many consequences because this can lead to like, you know, people who are planning to come to Ukraine for a job, um, they would not be exempt unless they already uh, own, like have some uh, right to live in Ukraine. Like relationship would could be you know affected by this different relationships. Uh, Are you th- speaking from experience there, Maria? <laughs> um, well, yeah, I'm personally affected by this as well because my boyfriend was planning to come from the UK to Ukraine on the fourth, and uh, he cannot do that now. Um, so it's yeah, we've been trying to figure out how he uh, you know how I could see him in another way, like me in a different country, which would be more expensive for both of us. Um, so yeah, this has affected me personally. Right now, I'm writing an article about this uh, in Ukrainian, though. Uh, hopefully I'll have um, time and translate it into English. But basically I'm gathering, you know, stories of people who are affected by this and are not able to come in Ukraine because of this. Because it's it's affecting so many people. Like, And a lot of people are criticizing it because it doesn't even seem like foreigners who come into Ukraine are a big source of, uh, you know, the spread of the, of the, of the virus because... Even if they, when they get to Ukraine, they have to quarantine for two weeks unless they come from a green country and, or do the test. Like, it seems hard for foreigners to be able to spread the virus, even if they do come infected. And there are so many temperature checks as well. Like, it seems with, you know, with the whole country not observing the, the quarantine rules and recommendations. Uh, and that's very obvious when you go outside and you, you know, go to, public transport and see people not wearing the mask properly, it seems like they are fighting the wrong um the wrong thing. Like they are not targeting the right the right source of the of the problem. And again, the ban's only for a month. So we'll we'll have more on this later. And and while the flight ban may be disrupting a lot of people's plans, it's not even one of the most shocking stories this week. And that would be a uh firearm attack on a bus uh, traveling down the Kiev Kharkiv Highway. So this happened uh, yesterday night as of uh, recording time. Uh, and according to law enforcement, four people were wounded in the shooting. So basically, uh, the bus was going down the highway. Suddenly, a car pulled up on the highway, blocked off the bus. Then people came out of that car and started shooting into the bus. So four people were wounded. Three of them suffered injuries from these uh, from non-lethal weapons is what... Ukrainian law enforcement saying they were shot with. Uh, Someone suffered head trauma. They're all um, in operating rooms right now. But it's not entirely clear who was doing the shooting or why. So there are kind of two competing narratives here. Um, Opposition MP Ilya Kiva, who is pretty famous for getting into fistfights at restaurants, uh, wrote on his Telegram channel that the bus was filled with members from the pro-Russian opposition platform for Life Party. And he alleged that representatives from the Azov Regiment and the right-wing group National Corps carried out this attack. Uh, And, of course, Azov and National Corps denied the news. Um, They, in fact, recommended that Kiva be arrested for questioning about his own role in the attack. 
But there are reasons to suspect that these organizations are involved, aside from allegations from disreputable sources. As two days prior to the attack, National Corps and a group connected to the platform party, Patriots for Life, had their own scuffle in which National Corps accused the Patriots group of shooting at them. Though, of course, the Patriots say the opposite, that they were shot at. Um, what gives more credence to these theories of this attack being kind of a politically motivated affair has been a statement from Deputy Interior Minister Anton Hrashenko, who stated that the assumed suspects of the attack have been detained and that the attack was carried out between, quote, two groups of members of other political parties, unquote, and said that the national police will react strongly to any violent provocations regardless of party affiliation. Police have opened charges of hooliganism, which seems to be just the go-to charge for Ukrainian law enforcement, and attempted murder of two or more people. Uh, Zelensky himself actually stepped in. He commented on the attack, saying that Ukraine must not return to the tumultuous 90s. This was in the uh, 1990s, after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, across most of the post-Soviet sphere, uh, law and order sort of broke down. There's a lot of gangsterism, a lot of mafia groups are operating. And he added that society needs to remember that the government has laws and police, which, to be fair, sometimes in Ukraine, you could be forgiven for forgetting these two things exist. And from one political party to another, because Yulia Tymoshenko, the head of Bankivshina, also known as the former prime minister of Ukraine, she has been diagnosed with the coronavirus. Uh, she's in a critical but stable condition, and that's been reported by members of her party, dispelling rumors that uh, her condition caused by uh, contracting COVID-19 had worsened. And they denied, however, that she has been hooked up to artificial ventilation, uh, contradicting reports surfacing on several Ukrainian media outlets. Tymoshenko's uh, associates did not respond to any clarifications sought by Hermatsky. And Tymoshenko is just the latest victim of the rising wave of the coronavirus pandemic in Ukraine, with yesterday seeing yet another record, nearly 2,500 new cases, and a spike in the week's dynamic of having about 1,500 to 2,000 new cases per day. And Kyiv itself is one of the biggest drivers of new cases, with 250 cases found yesterday in Kyiv alone. Yet, Kyiv remains in the yellow quarantine zone, meaning that restrictions are very mild, with an very often ignored ban on operating restaurants and bars past midnight. And Ukraine is still moving ahead to reopen schools and universities despite the rising waves. And in fact, despite the government's own prognoses, um, namely Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council, who have warned that the situation will likely worsen. They, in fact, project having 360,000 Infected patients by late October, that's almost a triple of our current numbers, right around the time that Ukraine is scheduled to have local elections. The movie theaters are still open. And speaking of movie theaters, Maria, you've been to a theater this week. Yes. I mean, I normally wouldn't go. I try to avoid uh, places where, you know, there are crowds of people. But this week, uh, Slistvo.info, which is an investigative agency, uh, they are Hermatsky's good friends. We're literally in the same building, just on different floors. But they premiered an investigation into Privatbank, and that's Ukraine's biggest commercial bank. And it was uh, formerly owned by Ukrainian oligarchs Igor Kolomoisky and Gennady Bogolyubov. And Privatbank, it was founded in 1992. It was nationalized after 24 years of function as a private business. Uh, and the official reason for nationalizing in December 2016 was uh, to protect its 20 million customers and to preserve financial stability in the country. Since the nationalization emerged that at least 5.5 billion US dollars have disappeared from the bank. And... Um, 
up until recently, it was hard to prove where this stolen money went to. Kolomoisky himself used this as a reason to like defend himself. Like, if the money was stolen, show me where it went. But seems like somebody has finally managed to show where the money went. Um, Slistvo Info, as I uh, described them earlier, journalists from this um, from this investigative agency, they traced down and packaged all of these new findings of where the money actually went to into a film that they called Break the Bank. At the moment, the film is is in Ukrainian and there are no English subtitles, uh, but they are translating it. It's you know they are working on this now, and so that the English subtitles should be available, I believe, maybe in a week or around. So. Um, so I spoke with the author of the film, Olena Loginova, and she explained all of their findings. Let's take a listen to what she said. Olena, thanks so much for agreeing to speak to me. I watched the film on Wednesday and you've done a stellar job. Well done. Um, can you tell me about some of your biggest findings for our audience who can't watch it in English? Okay, thank you, Maria, for watching um, our documentary, Amazed by Pisco. Really appreciate uh, because it's a very complicated uh, subject for um, audience. I think uh, um, people prefer to watch some uh, human stories, and it's difficult to make stories about uh, fraud and um, million dollar transactions if you. Um, Okay, so main findings uh, in this documentary is that we got uh, a secret uh, crime report. Um, it's the report uh, of um, international company <laughs> around the world and our uh, national bank of Ukraine. And this institution, as they asked Claude to help them. Um, to see what happened in Ukrainian's biggest bank because uh, they found out that there was a big hole in uh, the bank. And so um, I think uh, journalists all around the world are now looking for this document because um, there are cases in USA, in the UK, and everybody uh, is trying to uh, find out what Kroll uh, did, what Kroll report uh, uh, how it ends, what are the results? And we got this second part of its report uh, where detectives, uh, they found assets uh, of Ivan Kolomansky and Gennady Bogolubov, ex-owners of a private bank. This is main finding. Uh, I want to um, say also that they don't say that all these assets, they were blocked um, from money from private bank. It was the task of uh, National Bank of Ukraine, which we see the problem in this bank. Can you please help us to see what assets the uh, owners of this bank have all around the world, so we can um, just in case we want everything all cursed, we can um, recover this. So that was their task, and it's important for um, people to know uh, what they find and uh, what. In a, the main, in the best scenario, we can recover, we can go back to our state budget because we got losses uh, because of these things, as Andrew uh, said. So also, I think it's very important that Carol uh, saw that this money from the loan recycling scheme, um, 
they went in personal accounts of Igor Kolomoisky and Hamadi Bogolubov. And they also had um, accounts in a uh, um, branch of private bank in Cyprus. And because of this branch, this all the whole scheme uh, was working. Because our regulator, they haven't seen that the money left the country. They saw that uh, like Cyprus is in Ukraine. Yeah, they thought that money uh, are still here. And it's very important that money from this loan recycling scheme, they went to personal accounts of ex-owners. It was, um, I think it's new information and very important. And how much money was, uh, do you know how much money was um, laundered through this, you know, through th- this uh, loophole in the system as it seems, because uh, the Cypriot branch was technically uh, on paper registered, like, mentioned as if it's in Ukraine. Do you know what percentage of that uh, 5.5 billion US dollars that were disappeared, that disappeared, how much actually has been laundered in that way? Actually, um, at this moment, I can say just that um, our regulator, uh, they had presentation uh, two years ago in 2018, and it was um, their presentation of the results uh, of the scheme, and they said that it was uh, 5.5 billion mm-hmm. dollars. That was the money withdrawn from the bank uh, because of um, existence of this um, Cyprus branch, and it was during 2013-2016, if I'm not mistaken. And that was the result which uh, our regulator openly publicly said two years ago. You mentioned that in, um, you know, that you managed to obtain this, uh, like you call it, secret document from Kroll. So this is uh, documents that have been previously not published. How did you get this information? Um, it was um, obtained uh, through um, my sources. And as you understand me as journalist, uh, I cannot... Uh, say who is the source because the person did it for some reason like this. He didn't or she didn't want to be public and she didn't want it or he to to, uh, for somebody from reporters to analyze the information and make it public. Just information from the source. But when I got it uh, I was <laughs> um, I was thinking, how can I prove uh, some um, some moments? For example, if I see list of properties in UK of Bogolubov, uh, of course I was uh, checking it uh, in the UK land registry because sometimes it was they were doing this report in 2016 and now it's 2020. But at the end, I decided that I will just. Uh, show what Kroll find it. Because I saw also that some buildings, they couldn't find real um, ultimate beneficial owners of these buildings because uh, they were hiding in other offshore companies like Bailey's. Uh, and then we, we know that some of these buildings were also mentioned in uh, other court cases. For example, if you remember uh, with Pinchu, uh, it was also case which was in um, uh, London High Court. But it was my decision just to show that Crow, uh, for that moment, they found these um, properties all around the world. And it's also important because maybe if even these owners uh, sold it, they also should got some money. 
And do you know how this information was being used? Uh, is it used in courts or is it going to be used now that you've made it public, the information that you found? react um but do you see because at the moment it doesn't seem i mean there are i think there are court cases opened against uh kolomoisky in several countries in uh in the uk in switzerland uh, uh but it doesn't seem like a lot of them are moving ahead that much except for maybe in the us where we saw like you know all these searches uh, being done by the fbi in cleveland uh do you see that any of this will actually lead to uh any real results and maybe if you can say that in Ukraine because in Ukraine we haven't seen anything done because Kolomoisky is in Ukraine now and uh you know there's enough of all this finance there's enough to put him in prison do you see any real action being taken against uh, Kolomoisky that could hold him accountable actually i uh, in the morning i was um, listening uh, interview of um, head of national corruption bureau of ukraine And he said that uh, it's ongoing investigation. And he also watched our movie, and he said that it just that it's ongoing, and uh, soon we will see results. But we he cannot say when. Mm-hmm. So I cannot uh, um, I cannot respond on behalf of our official uh, investigators, uh, law enforcement uh, agents. But I I hope they will do so. I hope some. Uh, A moment from the documentary can be also like purpose to open another cases. Okay, just it seems like yeah. We, uh, as investigative journalists, we always hope uh, that we are doing this for some reason for guilty uh, to be punished. But um, it's uh, now it's tough for official citizens. Uh, Yeah, it's just the whole case is so global and involves so many different properties. So like a few countries, it just it's hard to see. Like hopefully, as you as you said yourself, you hope that something will happen. I hope myself, but it's such a global case and it involves so much money. Like it's quite a hard one, but hopefully they pull it off. And lastly, I wanted to ask you because after the film, you said that you tried to get Kolomoisky to watch the film and see his reaction. Has that happened so far? Because you said that before it hasn't, but has it changed since? Oh, no, unfortunately, I got many uh, messages from friends, uh, from uh, people who watched it, but not from from other heroes from the movie, but. Um, Even Kolomoisky didn't say nothing at the moment. Maybe I will 
my first hymn today. I don't know. Okay, well, good luck with that. I hope uh, continue continue doing your job because you're doing a great job, and I hope that you know there will be some reaction and there will be consequences. There will be actual results from from your work. And thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you, Maria, for your attention. It was nice to speak to you. So that was Elena Loginova, a journalist at the Slitsvo.info investigative agency. And that is it for this week. If you like this podcast, please rate it on your favorite podcast platform. We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Your ratings and reviews really help us. And this is far from the only thing we do. You can check out our YouTube videos by searching for Hermansky International, including a explainer we have on the situation in Belarus. And also, uh, we've just published uh, my interview with Nina Yankovic, who's an, an analyst, a researcher at Wilson Center. And the interview is uh, about how Russia uses disinformation in different countries. But the video that I published is specifically about the case of uh, Poland and the LGBTQ community there. So watch that as well if you do go on our YouTube channel. So definitely give that a look. And don't forget to sign up for our daily newsletter by following the link in our description. And you can follow us on Facebook, search for Hermansky International, and on Twitter at at Hermansky. Thank you for being with us today. Please don't forget to rate us. Mm-hmm.